0: If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter, chapter 1, the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We have been in a series of sermons in 1 Peter, and our regular exposition this morning brings us to verse 13, and we'll read through verse 21. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter, chapter 1 He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of You, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that Your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray once more. Our Father, we pray that in these moments and in this hour, You would be our teacher by Your Spirit that you would please assist us, that you would please open up our minds to help us to understand the Scriptures. And we pray that you would create in each of our hearts a responsive spirit, an eagerness to submit ourselves to the Word of God, an eagerness to follow in the path of righteousness that you have laid out for us, an eagerness to go in the way that you would lead us as our shepherd through your Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at the first 12 verses of Peter's epistle uh, after a short introduction at the start of the epistle wherein Peter identifies uh, we who are the Lord's people as the elect exiles, those who have been called of God and those who have been uh, kept by Him. Uh, he then proceeds into a section of doxology beginning in verse 3 and really ending in verses 12, perhaps verse 13. There's no imperatives in these beginning verses. The focus is all on what God has done to bring about salvation and new birth for His people and to give to them an inheritance of eternal life in heaven forever. And so we read verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in the verses that follow, Peter continues to celebrate the hope that Christians have in the inheritance to come. And he recognizes, beginning in verse 6 through 9, that this hope endures even through trials and sufferings, that suffering and various trials that are present in our lives even now don't jeopardize or threaten this hope that we have, this inheritance that we have as Christians. And then in verses 10 through 12. Peter explains the connection between the Old Testament Scriptures and what the prophets had said would come about, in the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories that would be revealed, and this great inheritance, this great hope, this great salvation that is ours. Now, in verse 13, the, the flow of the chapter changes. Peter turns from the indicative, all these things that are true, he turns from the is, and he turns to the ought, the imperative, how we as God's people should respond in light of this great salvation, in light of this inheritance that is ours. How are we to respond to what has been revealed about our salvation? So we read verse 13, therefore, after all we've seen about what God has done in Christ to cause us to be born again and give us an inheritance, therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on that, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. After 12 verses of doxology over the hope that is ours, he says, therefore, in other words, because these things are true, because of the indicative, here is your duty, here is the imperative, your responsibility, the posture you should take in light of these things. And, and the main command in verse 13, really actually in the original Greek, the only command, is that we are to set our hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's told us about our hope, but now He calls us to set our hope on the grace that will be revealed. Set your hope on the return of Christ as an act of the will, as an act of faith. We're to set our hope fully on Christ and on the grace that will be given to us on that day. It's the main command. Set your hope. On the grace that will be revealed. However, that command in verse 13 to set our hope on this grace doesn't exhaust all the imperatival force of this verse, the other commands that might be present in this verse. Those phrases, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, though they're not originally imperatives in the Greek, they carry the weight of imperatives. They're a calling to how we should respond. They require us to do certain things. So what should characterize one who sets his hope fully on God? Well, it should involve a preparing of the mind for action. The the phrase literally in the Greek is um, girding up the loins of your minds. Now, we don't really use that language anymore, but that was uh, what you would do if you were getting ready for action. You would gird up the loins of Your skirt, and you tuck them into your belt, and then you'd be ready for action, ready to run, ready to do work, or something like that. A modern day idiom we might use would be something like roll up your sleeves. Roll your sleeves because you're getting ready to do some work. Now, Peter is calling them to action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Roll your sleeves up. Prepare your minds for action because he's about to marshal these Christians to response, to action in light of what they have just heard about their hope. But it's not just that we should prepare our minds for action, roll up our sleeves as it were. Uh, To set our hope fully on God also involves the pursuit of sober-mindedness or literally self-control. It requires that we bring ourselves into submission, uh, that we uh, bring ourselves under the influences of God's Spirit and under His Word and possess ourselves, control ourselves, that we might be ready to act in accord with our hope. So we set our hope on God, which involves this preparing ourselves for action, this commitment to sober, self-controlled living. And the point is that, that though God has done all of this for us, He has made us elect exiles, given us this great inheritance and the promise of a coming homeland, even as we suffered various trials, we still have lives to live in the present. We still have work. That God calls us to do. We still have commands God calls us to obey. It's not like we're just supposed to hide out, you know, and and, and wait for our hope to arrive someday. There's something God has us to do with our lives in the here and now, and that is what Peter turns to in the remaining verses of this chapter, and in a sense, in the rest of the book. Peter now turns to the subject of the holiness of life that should mark Christian people. And in this passage, we can discern various incentives for holiness, various motivations Peter gives us for pursuing holy lives before the Lord. And that is the subject of this message this morning. I want us to consider in these verses the incentives or motives for holiness of life that Peter gives us in verses 13 through 21. Of course, we are often commanded to be holy. And that command, be holy, should be enough for God's people, for Christians to want to be holy. But the Bible graciously furnishes us with many incentives to be holy, with many motivations to be holy. I I love my wife, and I could have many incentives to love my wife, many motivations to love my wife. God, of course, calls me to love my wife, and that is incentive enough to love her but I also enjoy my wife and she makes me happy, which is a further incentive to loving her. And then, of course, my love for her helps to secure her happiness and joy. Our children who look on at our relationship hopefully will learn love in part by the example they see in their father's love toward their mother. All of these things are various incentives to do the work of loving my wife. Similarly, the Bible provides us with many incentives for pursuing personal holiness. And in this passage, we can discern at least three, as there will be three headings that govern our time this morning, three incentives we can see in this passage that move us toward holiness before the Lord. Number one, the first incentive is the holiness of God Himself, the holiness of God Himself. First incentive, the holiness of God. Please look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter addresses them now, not as elect exiles, though that theme is going to carry through the whole book. He now addresses them as obedient children. One of the most wonderful things about being a Christian is that you are regarded not only as a forgiven sinner, I mean, what could be more wonderful than that to have all my sins forgiven, but you're not just reckoned to be a forgiven sinner and a follower of Christ, you are regarded in truth as a child of God. And one of the most wonderful things about being a true child of God is that our status as the children of God is not ultimately dependent upon our obedience. It is of the utmost comfort for us as Christians to understand that when we fail, that when we disobey, we don't cease to be God's children any more than when our children, those of us who have children, disobey us, uh, they fail to be our children. They're no longer our children. The relationship does not depend upon obedience. Just as when our children sin against us, they don't cease to be our children. When we sin against God, we don't cease to be His children. So breathe out and recognize my, my status as God's child is secured and established by God Himself, and it's not jeopardized, it's not removed, because I so often fail, because I so often sin, because so I often disappoint Him. Having said that, all true Christians should wish to be and work to be obedient children. So, 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 so the The message I just conveyed, that our status before God doesn't depend on our obedience, doesn't create in us a rebellious spirit or a desire to disobey the Lord. We should still desire to be obedient children, first of all, and most importantly, because God Himself commands it. God calls us to obedience, and therefore we want to be obedient to our loving Heavenly Father because He calls us to this, and that should be enough for us. Uh, But more than that, we should pursue obedience before the Lord as His children, because it is in the context of obedience that fellowship and affection and intimacy between father and child are most fully enjoyed. So, so, so I said, our, our sin as the children of God doesn't, doesn't make us orphans, right? Right? God is still our Father when we sin, but in the context of sin, we don't enjoy the warmth and affection and fellowship of relationship with God our Father in the same way. It's very similar to our relationship with our own children. You parents of teenagers, um, you have a a young son, a young daughter who uh, is, is a rebellious child, and they, they, they don't want to obey mom and dad. They don't want to live by mom and dad's rules. They're missing curfew left and right. They are not showing any sort of regard or respect. They're not responsive to your love and to your care and to your uh, uh, directives for them. Well, they haven't ceased to be your child. You still love them. There's still a, 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 a framework for safety and security and, and trust there. But you're not experiencing the fullness of relationship that's meant to be experienced between a parent and a child. There's something compromised in terms of warmth and fellowship and affection because you're not living in harmony with one another. Your child is rebelling against the, the way you've laid out for them. Similarly, our sin can fracture our sense of fellowship and nearness to God. We should pursue obedience to God as His children because God calls us to obedience, and it is the context in which full fellowship and warmth and joy in relationship with the Father is enjoyed. So, Peter calls these Christians to be obedient children, and he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You were called out of that. Don't let sin have any dominion over you. Those sinful passions that dominated your life, be they anger, lust, gluttony, greed, materialism, slander, drunkenness, whatever they were, you make a break from them. Those passions will conform you to their will. They want to press you to your will. You make a break with them. You you can't allow sin to reign over you. You need to dissociate from those former passions. Say no to the passions that marked your former way of life when you lived in ignorance of the grace of God and His will for your life. And then we have the motive given, the incentive. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Those words, be holy for I am holy, are introduced to us in some form or fashion four times in the book of Leviticus. God's people under the old covenant saw holiness of God Himself as one of the greatest incentives for their own pursuit of holiness. And Peter commends the same perspective for us in the New Testament age under the New Covenant. The the power of that incentive, the power of that motivation that God is holy, therefore we should be holy, it's, it's no less in force and in compelling power under the New Covenant than it is under the Old Covenant. In fact, as we've already acknowledged in this epistle of 1 Peter, There's all sorts of Jewish overtones, and that continues throughout the book, and and Peter uses similar language to address these Gentile Christians all over Asia Minor uh, than Old Testament writers use to address Old Testament saints. So, we'll read in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, for example, you yourselves are to be a holy priesthood. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, some will say that that's a very old covenant way of thinking. This sort of zeal for holiness, passion for holiness, motivated by the holiness of God, that was was very much the way Old Testament saints think, but it's a little different under the era of grace. That thinking is entirely wrong and completely foreign and alien to the Bible. Zeal for holiness does not diminish under the New Covenant, rather it is intensified. It is intensified because the revelation of God's holiness is greater in the New Covenant in the person of His Son, and the incentives to holiness are multiplied under the New Covenant. And this particular incentive is carried over directly from the Old Covenant, directly from Leviticus, we are commanded to be holy, for God is holy. The point is, this is who God is. God is holy, and we have come to love God and have come to understand and know and appreciate something of His moral worth and beauty and holiness. We should imitate Him. One of the most common ways the Bible conveys the holiness of God is with the image of light, light represents moral purity, moral clarity, moral perfection, and it's often in an antithesis to darkness which represents evil and sin. So we read in 1st John for example this, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 adopts a similar way of talking about light and darkness, holiness and sin. In Ephesians 5 verse 8, he writes, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, the logic, God is light, and if you've been born of God, if you're God's child, you would walk as children of light. For the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Why should we as Christians be holy? What incentive, motivation is here for us to live in holiness? We should be holy because this is who God is part of being in fellowship with Him is walking in the light as He is in the light. We imitate Him in His holiness. We are to be holy, conduct ourselves in holiness, live in holiness because God Himself is holy. Now consider with me the second incentive, the second motivation we're given in this passage for holiness. Consider with me, secondly, the coming judgment of God. first incentive is the holiness of God Himself. God is holy, we should be holy. Secondly, the coming judgment of God. Look at verse 16. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, there are a number of things we should observe in this verse. I think it's very easy to misunderstand and misconstrue the meaning of this verse, so I want to take some time here. In fact, most of the rest of our time will be under this heading and opening up this particular verse. Okay, first of all, looking at verse 17, we must recognize that our Father is also our judge. Our Father is also our judge. Peter says, you Christians need to recognize the one you call upon as Father is also the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So, so friends, the Bible never teaches that Christians get a pass on the judgment. You know that, right? We will be judged. Those who are in Christ, in the Lord, we too will be judged. We should never teach people well, look, if, if you come to Christ, that means God will no longer be your judge, He'll be your Father. We should never put those things in competition to one another or antithesis to one another. Do you have God as Father or do you have God as Judge? The Bible never gives us any warrant for using that type of language. Of course, it's wonderful that God is our Father, but He is also Our judge, He is the judge of the righteous and the unrighteous, of the children of God and the children of Satan and of this world. And so I'll just ask you, Christian, in your reflections on God, as you consider your relationship with Him, as you contemplate His person and His being, is there any space in your thoughts about God in thinking of Him as judge, judge of the world, judge of all humanity, past, present, and future? judge of you and of your own heart. Do you ever think of God as judge? This text would teach us that God is, in fact, our judge, and He judges impartially. He doesn't grade on a curve. The children of God don't get a pass from the judgment, but we should say more than that. Not only do we, too, have God as judge, But we too will be judged according to our deeds. That's what the passage says, right? We will be judged according to our deeds. There's no double standard for Christians, no curve. We, like all men and women, will be judged according to our deeds. And let me just say at this point, because I know where some of our minds go when we contemplate the judgment, when we contemplate the idea of being judged according to. Our deeds, we must resist the urge to explain this away by some sort of awkward and clumsy appeal to the imputed righteousness of Christ. As though this text teaches, yes, we will be judged according to our deeds, but really it'll be Christ's deeds imputed to us, so we have nothing to worry about. Our deeds actually never are allowed to enter the equation. Friends, this verse has nothing to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ. In order to make that connection, you would have to introduce something that is totally alien to Peter's line of thinking here. He's not talking about justification by faith. He's not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's talking about believers living holy lives and the reality that they will appear before the judgment seat of God and that they also will be judged according to their deeds, their works, not the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's not to deny imputation. Was simply to say it's not what's going on in this passage. We Christians, just like all others, will be judged according to each one's deeds. And I'll just say at this point as well, this is not an isolated or obscure idea in the Bible. It's not like you find this in a couple of corners. This is all over the Bible. In Romans 14, there Paul is concerned with Christians, genuine, true Christians who are judging one another and he's dealing with justified people in that passage. And, and, and in Romans 14, verse 10, we read this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Like your brother and you will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Young people, you will give an account of yourself to God. Every person in this room, be they saved or not, will give an account to God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, Paul there says, including himself, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Peter would have heard the Lord himself bringing this same truth to him as one of his disciples in the gospel accounts. In Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Just think of that. And friends, I don't know that I could enumerate the number of careless words I have spoken in 2020. Each one will appear in the judgment. I mean, am I reading into this passage? Every careless word will enter into the judgment. Matthew 16, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. The very familiar passage in Matthew 25, where we have a picture of the judgment. What is it that categorizes the sheep and the goats? It's their deeds. It's, it's what they did. Did they feed the hungry? Did they give cups of cold water? Did they clothe the naked? Did they visit the saints in prison? What did they do? What were their deeds? What marked their lives? And that is what seems to determine who will be in which category. And then, of course, you have tons of verses, like Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness that saints must have without which they will not see the Lord. Okay, now let's work this out. For whatever reason, lots of Christians hear these verses and hear the sorts of things I'm saying this morning, and they struggle with this notion that we Christians will be judged according to our deeds. Like, how can that be? And sometimes the response is, well, don't you believe like Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, amen? Amen. Or what about what Peter's going to say later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Doesn't the Bible teach that we shouldn't fear condemnation, that we shouldn't fear punishment? And my friend, the answer is gloriously yes. I haven't said anything about condemnation, anything about punishment, and none of the texts I've read condemnation in view for the believer. We will be judged, yes, according to our deeds, but just appreciate this. This is not a judgment for the Christian that leads to condemnation. Whatever is true of this judgment for Christians, it will not lead to them being damned. It will not lead to them being put outside of heaven. It will not lead to condemnation and to punishment. Nonetheless, a common objection this idea remains as it relates to how we can understand this idea of Christians being judged according to their deeds in connection with doctrines like unconditional election or, or justification by faith alone or the perseverance or preservation of the saints. How does this doctrine, this idea that we're going to be judged according to our deeds, fit in with those truths that we hold to be so dear, that are so central to our faith. Does the biblical teaching that we Christians will be judged for our works jeopardize or threaten the doctrines of unconditional election, that we are chosen by God before the foundations of the world purely and totally on the basis of God's free grace? Or or justification by faith alone, that we are pardoned of all our sins and declared right in God's eyes in a moment, purely and totally by grace, through the faith which God supplies. Or the perseverance of the saints, that all those who are in Christ will indeed make it to the end, having faith, united to Christ as God's children. The answer is no, not at all. This teaching that we too will be judged according to our works doesn't jeopardize any of those truths any of those doctrines. Now, let me make an effort to synthesize those three doctrines in particular with the teaching that Christians will be judged according to their works just like everyone else. so, So, in the next five minutes, I know this is somewhat tedious, but it's important that you focus your minds. I'm going to endeavor to be very precise with my language as we try to understand something that's very important. I think lots of Christians get hung up on this And they struggle to know how to read their Bibles, and they struggle how to understand imperatives, and they struggle with how they think about the judgment and what that says about their present conduct and things like that. So, let's try to work this out together. Let's say that in the next hour, we hear the trumpet sound announcing the return of Christ, which could happen. You all know that, right? In the next hour, the trumpet might sound and the dead would be raised. and We would all then enter into the judgment. And here is this Christian who appears before the judgment seat of Christ. Her name is Jane. Jane is a true Christian. Well, what would be true of Jane as she appears in the judgment? At least four things. Number one, Jane would have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world Unconditionally, only on the basis of the unearned favor and grace of God. As a sheer act of God's mercy and compassion, she would have been one of God's elect. Number two, what would be true of Jane? Number two, in a moment in time, Jane would have been given the gift of true saving faith, whereby she believed on Jesus and was justified in a moment meaning she was forgiven of all her sins, past, present, and future, and was declared right in the eyes of God. Like, that happened at a point in time in Jane's experience. Third thing that would be true of Jane, through the gift of faith and the sovereign care of God, Jane would have been preserved by God throughout her entire Christian walk so that her faith ultimately would not fail to the point of the ruin of her soul God would continue to supply grace to help Jane to continually exercise faith and to continually strive to follow Christ and be kept from falling away all by the superintendence of God by his grace. And number 4, finally, Jane would have lived a life fueled by the saving faith that God supplies which resulted in holiness of life, good works, good deeds, acts of righteousness, which always proceed from true, genuine, saving faith. She would be judged according to her works. And thus, the judgment of God, with all those four things being true, the judgment of God, His judicial ruling that Jane is right with God and will indeed be an inheritor of life forever in the new heavens and new earth is based on the gracious mercy and unconditional grace of God, and at the same time is in accord with good works. Not on the basis of good works, in accord with the good works that proceed from the faith which God supplied by His grace and by His mercy. So we are saved only by the grace and mercy and compassion of God. And it is in accord with the works that flow out of faith that invariably mark every true Christian. Jane would have had the holiness without which no man or woman would see the Lord. She would have possessed that holiness, been marked by good works in her life. She would have been one of those we considered in Titus 2 verse 14, one of those Christians who's zealous for good works, passionate for holiness. But but where did all that come from? How did that all come to mark her life. It came about through sovereign election. It came about through justification by faith, through the gracious new birth, which is purely an act of God, and through the faith which God supplies as a gift that proceeds in good works and in holiness of life. And thus, the judgment can be said for the Christian to be in accord with good works. Now, it's also true that every act of sin, every idle word, every bitter thought, every evil deed will also be read out in the judgment. That's true for Christians and non-Christians alike. But we can be assured the results of the sins of God's people will not be that they are condemned. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though our sins do form part of our record, and though every idle word of the Christian will be acknowledged in the judgment, they will not result for the Christian in his or her condemnation because the blood of Christ was shed for believers. The record of our sins and all of our unrighteous thoughts, words, and actions will be profoundly and soberingly painful and may cause us great shame Listen, this is true of Christians. All of us should dread the day of judgment. Like the Bible in so many places conveys that perspective. We should dread the day of judgment. It's not going to result in condemnation. Look, we're all going to make it to heaven. I'm not worried about that. I'm not sweating that at all. But judgment day will be a difficult day for Christians. It will be a hard day for Christians. Everything will be exposed. Everything will be seen. We don't know if it will all be public before the whole world or in the presence of God and His angels. But our sins will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it will be painful. We should be sobered by that. We should be gripped by that. There should be a seriousness in the recognition of that fact. But it's also true that just as all the bad will be seen in the judgment, the good will also be seen and will be commended. And every true Christian will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Our good works will appear then as a sort of vindication of our justification, as the fruit of true saving faith." Okay, so coming back now to our text. We've been miles away from 1 Peter one seventeen. Now we're, we're back to it. What effect should this have on us, this realization that we will appear also before the judge who is also our Father? Verse 17, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. So here's Peter writing to a group of Christians, and he's telling them, look, you're going to be judged according to your deeds. What is the appropriate response? How should we respond to that realization that I will, that you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And the answer is fear. How should we understand this fear? This is not the terror that belongs to those who are outside of Christ. We will not be like those sinners who will pray for the rocks and hills to fall down upon them, We won't know that kind of terror. Blessed be God, we will never experience that kind of terror. It's not the sort of dread and horror that marks those who have reasons to believe they will be condemned at the last day and justly so. And it is not the kind of servile fear that always wonders if God is actually against us. So I I know he said he's for us, we Christians, but I wonder if that could really be true. And therefore, I'm going to kind of grovel at His feet and always try to to press my way into the favor of God. Rather, it is the sort of fear that recognizes that the judgment of God is a grave and fearful prospect. And on that day, I so badly want to be found faithful." It is a certain fear that marks those who know they have committed so many sins and that they will one day appear before the God who is perfectly holy and righteous, that all their deeds will be exposed. It is the fear of giving an account for everything and the accompanying pain and dread that comes with it. But this fear, this prospect of judgment, is meant to have an effect on believers, it is meant to drive us to holiness not as a way of earning our salvation, but, but we are to take this posture. I want to conduct myself always in a way that honors the Lord. I am going to put on holiness. I am going to put off sin because I don't want to stand before God with a life given over to sinfulness and self-indulgence. I fear God and the day of judgment too much for that. Therefore, I conduct myself with fear, with a sense of the gravity of life and the gravity of judgment. And this is miles away from the sort of casual and careless libertinism that is so prevalent in our day that just sort of shuffles up to God as though He's our buddy and He's going to wink at all of our faults because after all, we're God's children. That should never be our attitude as we think about God as our Father and our Judge. This is a sober reverence and fear of the living God that drives us to holiness of life. Now, I should further say that this is not a fear that is meant to erode our confidence that God is for us and that our inheritance is safe. That is not in jeopardy. So again, just breathe out. I'm not saying, well, if you do the wrong thing, you'll lose heaven. That is never taught. Peter just got done telling them, right? If you've been with us in this series, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, and you are kept for your inheritance. So that's not going anywhere. It doesn't perish. It can't be taken away from you. This is not a fear that introduces doubt about whether or not we're the children of God. Peter has just assured us that we are God's children, and he's instructed us to set our hope fully on the grace of God. So I'm not sweating over losing heaven, and yet Peter seems to say alongside all the confidence and all the security that is appropriate for the believer, we ought to feel this sense of godly fear of the coming judgment that leads us to sobriety, self-control, and holiness of life. And thus fear, holy fear, godly fear, appropriate fear for believers becomes an incentive for holiness. Like this is the response of faith to this passage, not dread of condemnation, but a serious pursuit of that holiness without which we won't see the Lord, a recognition that everything we do and everything we say and everything we think will enter into the judgment. This is the posture of the Christian in response to this passage. I want to live and speak and think and conduct myself in such a way that I will have no cause to be ashamed on that great and final day. Like like that's how we believers should respond to this. Again, We're not fearing condemnation, but in the presence of God, I want holiness and beauty and truth and what is right and good to shine in that day. I don't want any reason to have a life I'm ashamed of when I stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus. So, the first incentive to holiness in this passage is the holiness of God Himself. The second is the coming judgment of God. And third, something that is altogether wonderful and positive, we have the high price of our redemption. The third incentive to holiness in this passage is the high price of our redemption. Look at verse 17, if you would. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing there's a confidence we're meant to have Peter says, I want you to be holy because God is holy. (laughs) You should be holy because one day we're going to appear in the judgment, and we will be judged according to our works. But we should also pursue holiness knowing something. Something should be in our minds, knowing that you were ransomed. The the idea is that you were bought, that you were delivered by payment. Ransomed from what? What? Peter says, slavery from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. W- with what were you ransomed? Well, he says, not perishable things like silver or gold. The idea is like if you, were, if you were just ransomed with silver or gold, that's actually a cheap thing at the end of the day. That's something that can perish. It's invaluable. It's inconsequential. To be bought with money provides me with no incentive to holiness. But, but with what were we ransomed? He says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Be holy, conduct yourselves in fear, Christians, knowing you are ransomed by the blood of Christ. You've been bought through the most spectacular and invaluable expression of love through the shedding of the blood of God's own Son. The idea is that because we have been redeemed with something so precious, this should impel us toward holiness. This should provide us with every incentive toward holiness to live righteous and godly lives. Now let's see something clear. This isn't like the debtor's ethic. Like, well, well, look, God is, you know, He paid a heavy cost so that you would be saved. So you owe Him now and you need to earn back what you owe Him. That's not the idea at all. The Bible never conveys it in that way. The sentiment is rather more like the song. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We're just sort of overawed at what God has done for us, and it causes our hearts to run out to Him in obedience. Like, like what can I do to please Him? How can I honor Him? Look what He's done for me. L- look at what God in Christ has sacrificed. Look at the cost, the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. What could be more precious. Could there be a greater expression of love? And the effect that's meant to have on us is that we, we want to obey God. We want to please God because He has so expressed His love for us in saving us and ransoming us and purchasing us by the precious blood of His own dear Son. We should just feel so moved To serve God and to follow Christ in the light of this most extraordinary expression of love and grace. Friends, the gospel, the Father's giving of His own Son for the sake of sinners, is the greatest incentive to holiness. That doesn't diminish these other incentives that are provided for us, but the supreme incentive, what drives me more than anything to want to please God and to live a life of holiness, it must be the gospel what God has done. And that's very different from what you'll hear from some so-called preachers who will act as though the gospel is grounds for license, the gospel is grounds for libertinism. That's not true at all, and that's not how it's conveyed in this text. The free grace of God shown to us in Christ wins our hearts and transforms us and draws us toward holiness of life. It provides us with the most compelling motive, the most compelling incentive to pursue holiness before the Lord. Well, those are three incentives to holiness we can discern in this passage. Let me conclude with this. Um, We're living in very difficult days. Like as a nation, globally, we live in perilous times. And I've made it a point over the last year or so uh, to Uh, Ask older folks, like people who would have been alive, even adults in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, to to give some perspective from the vantage point of of those years, Um, have we ever seen anything like what we're seeing today in terms of the the tensions and the divisions that are present in our world? Have, Have we ever been in a climate of more political turmoil and division and strife? Have we ever seen people so eager to divide and to devour one another? And invariably, they always say, no. This is the most tense time, the most tumultuous time we've witnessed in American history. And and, and political strife and division has reached a fever pitch. It's never been like this. Never been quite like this in the history of the United States. I felt convicted lately that I have not given enough attention to equipping our church to face the many social and cultural challenges of the day, and to be honest, I've not really made any effort to prepare us for this upcoming election. I guess it's just a couple of weeks away at this point. So, let me say this in light of this passage and in light of everything we've seen thus far in 1 Peter. November 3rd is going to come around and we're going to have either the same president or a new president, and some people are going to rejoice like the Messiah's returned or something like that. And some people are going to be downcast and think the world is coming to an end. Here's three perspectives to keep in your mind no matter what happens on November 3rd Christians, first of all, we will still be exiles no matter what happens. I don't care if your guy wins or loses we will still be exiles. You could have Moses or David or the Apostle Paul or Augustine or Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon in office. We would still be exiles in this world. Regardless of who's elected, we will still be sojourners. This world will not be our home, and we will still be waiting for and looking for a homeland, a country that we don't yet possess, We will still be looking forward to our inheritance. Number two, regardless of what happens on November 3rd, our hope is still secure. Can't be taken away from us. 1 Peter 1 says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's kept in heaven for us. Nothing can jeopardize or threaten our hope. No pandemic, no elected official, no civil war, no global crisis. Our hope is unimpaired and intact. And thirdly, our calling is the same. No matter who is in office, no matter what happens in the weeks and months ahead, we are called by God to be holy as He is holy. We are called to conduct ourselves in fear, knowing that Jesus has paid the price for our sins and has given us every incentive to live for Him. There is always a way we are called to live in the present regardless of what is going on in our lives. We are called to be God's holy people, to live as a holy priesthood, a holy nation, to be holy even as God is holy, not to earn favor with God, not to establish our own righteousness by which we are saved, but to honor Him with our lives and to live in a way becoming of people who have been saved by the grace of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we who are your people so want to honor you with our lives. We want to live in holiness. We want to to give ourselves to good deeds and to good works. We don't want to have any reason to be ashamed on the last day. We pray that you would continue to bring before our minds these incentives, these holy motivations to holiness of life. We pray that you would help us increasingly to hate our sin, to mortify our sin, to put off our sin, and to cling to holiness of life and to pursue holiness of life. We thank you that through the gift of faith, you have been pleased to change our wills and change our hearts to actually want to do those things that you call us to do. Help us and lead us in the paths of righteousness. May your word and your truth be like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so we can know how to live and to walk in holiness of life throughout tumultuous days, difficult days. We pray that you would move among your people here at Emmanuel Church and in every place, wherever your people are. We pray that against the backdrop of so much sin and sorrow and darkness and division and strife, the holiness of your people would shine and that it would provide this most compelling witness, this most compelling invitation, this most c- compelling argument for what the grace of God can do when it gets a hold of sinners and transforms them by the power of the Spirit. We pray that our, the holiness of Your people would be one of the things that invites sinners to come to Jesus, that many would see the good deeds of Your people and give glory to our Father who is in heaven We pray that you would help each Christian here, that none of us would ever make the mistake of thinking that it is by our conduct or by our deeds or by our works that we secure the favor of God or that we earn heaven, but that you would help us to know that we are only saved purely and totally by your grace and your mercy and your compassion through what you have done in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that that would have the effect of driving us to live lives that honor him Help us to understand these things. Help us to live aright according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.